Well, welcome to Simon & White, the podcast at the nexus of business, media, and politics. I'm Christian White, and joined, as always, by Mark Simon. Mark, please say hello. Hi, everybody. How are you doing today? All right. Well, uh, big news in that Joe Biden was over in Japan and said that the United States would come to the aid of Taiwan if it was attacked by China. Uh, this was quickly walked back by White House officials. And this is the third time now this has happened where Biden has said, yeah, of course, we're going to defend Taiwan if, defend, if Taiwan is attacked by by China. Uh, and the third time it's been walked back. Sometimes the walk back mark happens so fast. Uh, it seems the president wasn't even consulted that his staff just feels at ease to, um, you know, override the policies. But is this was this a classic gaffe uh, definition of which is when someone accidentally tells the truth? I mean, did Biden just do the right thing here and, and state the obvious? Or what do you think's going on? <sighs> You know, I, I told somebody the last Joe Biden I could have voted for was 1986, you know, the 1986 <laughs> version of Joe Biden. Um, I, I think Biden means every word of it. I, I think the fact is he said it three times. I think the other thing we have to remember, where did he say it? He said it in Japan. What was he hearing in Japan? He was hearing what we know he was hearing in Japan. The Japanese are taking a very hard line on making sure that Taiwan stays free and that those sea lanes stay open. I mean, let's be perfectly honest now. If you're the, if you're the Japanese, now you've got the Chinese who control the South China Sea um, with, their, with their island bases down there. They can shut that down unless we're willing to do something about it. And the other thing is now with the Solomon Islands and with these other Pacific Island nations, they're now expanding their reach out. They're gonna have probably radar stations at the very least out there in those islands where they can help with they work on their targeting and things like that. But I just really think that Biden basically has said it three times and three times the White House has walked it back. He may not even mind that they walk it back, but he knows the message that he's sending. I'm the guy that's going to push the button. I'm the guy that's going to send troops. I'm the or send ships. And I think, quite frankly, he means it. And I think that is the U.S. position now. If Taiwan tries to declare independence or do something crazy like the DPP can do sometimes, then quite frankly, I think they're on their own. And I'm fine with that, to be honest with you. And if they're going to pick a fight, then I'm not too happy about it. But let's be blunt. If Taiwan is attacked because Xi Jinping is trying to like live out some battle Vladimir Putin fantasy or has this belief that he can bring Taiwan to heel, um, and do it in a seamless manner, I think that's false. And I think Biden's telling him that's false. Yeah, you know, there's, right. There's a theory that, uh, there are a couple of theories. One is that if America made its defense guarantee explicit, uh, beyond the Taiwan Relations Act, which Biden referenced, but actually just says that we don't want any uh, military aggression that changes the status quo and says, basically, we have to sell Taiwan, the arms necessary for self-defense. That's the subjective definition and um, successive administrations of both parties have actually um, prohibited Taiwan from buying the weapons it wants and needs. But anyway, the theory is if we ever made that explicit as Biden did for a few moments, um, that it would be too provocative of the Chinese, but also that you get the Taiwanese 
who would then, uh, I think there's some concern that they would underfund their defense. They'd say, as they thought in the past, well, we have an American guarantee and we can never spend enough to stand up alone against the PLA. Um, so let's not spend that much. If you look at what Taiwan spends on defense, it's not that much. It's less than, mm -hmm. than 2% of GDP, I believe, or right around there, close to it. Um, now, the flip side is there have been times where the U.S. has discouraged or, or made it very difficult for them to spend more by not selling them the weapons they wanted. But, I mean, I have a theory, but maybe it's wishful thinking that if we actually have a defense guarantee and if we have much more interaction, which, which is still very limited, more interaction between our two militaries, maybe have a unified command structure, uh, maybe even station some forces there. You know, we have a so-called tripwire uh, presence of U.S. forces in South Korea that's supposed to be a guarantee. It's supposed to be so obvious that Americans would be involved in any North Korean or Chinese invasion that, of course, the United States would become involved. I don't know. Am I being naive to think that maybe this would get Taiwan to spend even more on its defense and Japan to spend more on defense because well, it would realize there's U.S. skin in the game? The Taiwanese want to buy submarines, which is, frankly, I think is a joke. But the mm. other thing that they'd like to buy is they'd like to buy M109 self-propelled artillery. And we obviously discourage them from doing that. And that would be a wonderful weapon. Um, it's self-propelled. It's hard for the Chinese to target. Um, and so therefore it would be, and it's excellent for offshore defense. I think the biggest problem with the Taiwanese stems from the DPP and the country is not split. And in other words, it's not a 50-50 thing. It's more like an 80-20. The DPP, what I mean by the country is split is the DPP does have this younger contingent. And I, I really say it, they've got this under 30 contingent that's not serving in the military, that is not active in any type of, of self-defense. And the Taiwanese military seems to be happy just being their own little selves and you know having an all volunteer force, which is not enough people. So what I'm probably looking at is I think the Taiwanese real problem is they need to have more of a mobilization of their country. They need to have more people in the reserves. They need to have a reserve that actually looks more like Sweden or Finland or even Switzerland than they have right now. They need to have that porcupine defense that basically the Chinese know this. If they come across the water, the Americans may well be there. There's a strong possibility they will. And um, probability, not possibility, probability the Americans will be there waiting for them. And if the they try to go ashore, they're going to end up fighting the Taiwanese. I don't hold any illusions that the Taiwanese could hold out like the Ukrainians if the, if the Chinese actually got significant troops ashore. Right. But I do believe the Chinese would have a difficult time getting significant troops ashore. I mean, you know, they're going to be fighting 200,000 Taiwanese at the minimum if the Taiwanese fight. And I think now the Taiwanese are fight. If you remember, we talked about this for years, will the Taiwanese fight? Mm -hmm. I think that question has been settled. The question now is, will the Taiwanese have the proper training and enough manpower followed by the men? There's a young man over there named Paul Wong. Um, he's highly critical of President Chai, but I think he knows what he's talking about when he just says, the reserves are a joke. Um, the civil defense fund right now, civil defense groups led by uh, aspiring DPP politicians, Enoch Yu, you know, they're basically, they're basically handing out Band-Aids. These guys need to get, to get to understand that 
as General Jack Keane once said, they're going to rain hell for three days on Taiwan, kill 60,000 Taiwanese, and hope the Taiwanese surrender. But I think that's not going to work for them. I think they got to put boots on the ground. And the question is, if they start attacking, what will the U.S. and Japan do? Japan has now moved equipment down south to those little islands. I can't remember the, um, I, escape me, to the, to the north of Taiwan. There are reports, and I believe it true, of more Japanese military officers showing up in Taiwan, having exchanges, Taiwanese going north. I just, I just don't think this is going to work out the way the CCP and the uh, DC experts have always mapped it out to be, that somehow there would be this, you know, certain things happen. And the other thing, too, is let's be blunt. The moment they start launching missiles, the Taiwanese are going to start launching back, no matter what. You know, the military is going to start firing some missiles back, and they can hit easily Chinese ships that are in and around the ports of China. So, you know, it's going to be quite something to, to see yeah. and quite bloody. And so I think the thing is what the president is doing is he's telling them that's what it's going to be. So can we get away from this? I'm not sure if that deters Xi Jinping or not. It's interesting. Um, you know, quick digression. You'd mentioned D.C. experts being wrong. And you also mentioned, I believe you're referring to the Solomon Islands. Uh, what the Chinese are up to. So we've always assumed that that the move, and you know, you go back to World War II and everyone, it wasn't such a surprise that the Japanese went to war. Everyone knew they were going to war, including the U.S. Army and the Navy that were out there. It's just everyone thought they were going to hit the Philippines first and not Pearl Harbor. And they did hit the Philippines. They just did it the day after. And we have this thing called War Plan Orange. Um, but it seems like the beginning of wars never really work out the way people plan. And I wonder if war with China, especially with some, you know, we've been concerned about the fake islands, the islands they've constructed in the South China Sea and some of their expansive claims there. Everyone thinks a move on Taiwan would be the beginning. Um, but it is interesting that they are so active now. Solomon's Guadalcanal, I believe, is part of that, paid for with American blood, Australian blood too, World War II. Um, this is to the east of Papua New Guinea and the north of Australia. Do you think there's something expansive going on there? Do you think this is some big change yeah, I mean, in strategy? I, I, I think the thing is, is that, you know, for too long, I mean, we've had, you know, in the Philippines, we used to call it little brown brother, you know, where we basically put the Filipinos under arms. The Asia experts in the U.S., and I'm not one of them. I mean, they lived out there for close to 30 years, but I don't claim to be an expert on the region. I just, like, I live there and I watch what goes on. Um, the fact of the matter is we have always underestimated the uh, aspirations of the Chinese. If I hear one more Sinologist who one day talks about the wonderful music he heard at the Beijing Opera, and then the next moment how the Chinese have never had any expansionary um, plans or any expansionary um, ideals. That's ridiculous. Look to the West where they're going, where they're pushing. The Russians do not have tactical nuclear weapons north of the Amir River because they are worried about Mongolians. They are worried about China. The Chinese, <laughs> the Japanese, the Koreans, everybody knows that the Chinese think they can put one over on you. As the Indians have learned, they're going to do it. So I, I'm, I, I am very pessimistic that any type of um, appeasement or any type of deal is going to work with Xi Jinping. Um, the other thing that's happening is that Xi Jinping and I think the Chinese know that they're kind of running out of time. And what I mean by that is their population is shrinking drastically. 
They are economically not what they thought they would be right now. In other words, their economy is not in good shape. COVID's got them in a horrible position. Um, and I just don't think that they are going to be thinking that they can do this 10 years from now. So maybe they might want to do it now. So we'll have to see. But, you know, I, I have to say, I don't think anybody understands the the damage that would happen to Asia. I mean, you know, people talk about a decoupling. If they attack Taiwan, they kill 60, 70,000. It's not going to be that, you know, all our all the people at the National Committee for U.S.-China Relations and the shills like Kurt Tong are going to mm-hmm. stop. They're just going to recalibrate. In other words, they say, okay, now we have to wait a year to talk about how valuable Ty- China is. And, of course, now that the Chinese control the chip factories in Taiwan, well, now we have to, of course, deal with them. In other words, it'll always be an excuse. It'll always be something that happens. I so, There will always be some reason to engage with them. But I think the American people aren't there. 84% of the American people, 84% have a negative impression of China. So I don't know where some of these people are getting that somehow there's going to be warm and fuzzy relations with China. Yeah, it's amazing. You have people like Kurt Campbell in the White House as the Asia czar, who uh, has been presumably the man on background uh, who's been walking back what Joe Biden has said. Uh, on Taiwan, that there's still this cottage industry of people from Kissinger through the Hillary wing of the Democrat Party, who um, is just theologically committed to we're going to have a great relationship yeah, it's with China. It's like watching the Vatican us politic. You know, the Vatican, no matter what China does, the Vatican can never, ever, it's a different subject, but it's the same. They can never, ever do anything wrong. And what happens is, is, you know, um, People think, well, we're going to go say something tough about the Chinese and we're going to stand up to them. But they really don't because the money's too good. Let's just be blunt. The money's really good. Kirk Campbell has an organization, the Asia Group, that he gave, turned over to a guy named Kurt Tong, the former consul general of Hong Kong. No one can figure out why they are so pro-China. I would love to see their client list. They're not divulging it. And we've got other groups, Committee of 100. We've got... Uh, major industry groups such as uh, uh, GM. We've got some companies that are very much involved in China. But the question is, do the American people value that? And I think the answer is no. And I, I, I think the thing is, is Biden actually, he do we really think Obama likes Xi Jinping? You know, Trump, do we really think Trump likes Xi Jinping? Or they just, you know, they had to deal with the guy. So I, I actually think Biden is basically making it very clear in every way that essentially, look, if you go on my watch, this is not going to happen. The question I have is, what if Joe's not there after the midterms? What if he decides it's time to call it in and makes his deal or whatever it is, and he leaves? Okay. At that point in time, at that point in time, what do we do with Kamala? What do we do with some of the other people? I think that would be the time that Taiwan is in the most dangerous position. That's right. Yes. Kamala yeah. Ding Dong running the country in the military. Yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, but you never know with her, too. She she could be in a position where she has to be tough. The yeah, other thing, no. too, is the other thing, too, is I'm always amazed. And this is just, you know, mil- some military. I'm always amazed that people think we're going to put U.S. aircraft carriers like, you know, on the other side of Taiwan. <laughs> we're not going to do it. There's going to be yeah. there's going to be, you know, eight or nine, ten U.S. submarines hanging out around Taiwan cruise missile, the SSGNs, the Ohio, and some of the, and a lot of the Los Angeles class guys and some of the Seawolf are going to be sitting over there. The Chinese have no ability to go after them. We know that. That's just, 
anybody who says that, I know a little bit about that world, they don't have the ability to do it. They're not going to be able to fly out and get them. Their submarines would never even make it out the door. And, um, you know, for the U.S. The other thing, too, is if you're a Chinese commander, are you going to let Okinawa stay where they can come and get you? Right, because so that's I, only 400 I, miles from Taipei, right? It's yeah, an I mean, unsinkable U.S.-Japanese aircraft that's, carrier. That's an F-15 or an F-35 coming down there with 30, 30 minutes over target over Taiwan. They don't need much more time than that to deliver their payloads, you know, on Jap on Chinese shipping. Um, are they going to allow those guys to just fly there or have the potential, the threat of them flying there? I'm not so sure that's it. The other thing, too, is let's be blunt. Um, once these things start, the idea that the SyncPak fleet is going to just sit there and and not be mobilizing and not be moving around, and the Chinese won't have any idea. Are they? Did they put up eight fighters? Did they move these ships around? What's going on? I think the Chinese are undisciplined. Um, I think they're probably a bit paranoid, and I think they will probably convince themselves, and I think they already have convinced themselves, they're just going to have to deal with the Americans. Right. But your point is that by engaging, so yes, they do have to deal with us. And if they attack Okinawa, then that automatically brings Japan into the war. And I'm not too. sure Japan waits for us, to be honest with you. Yeah. yeah. I'm not certain. You know, they, they in their mind, I mean, I mean if you look at it, start, start in Australia, work your way up to Singapore. If the Chinese get the Solomon Islands, if they, if they put people in the Solomon Islands and they have that, and then they put some other outlying islands. Where does Australian shipping go? Where does Japanese shipping go around to the Gulf? Where does oil stocks go? You know what I'm saying? It's a very difficult, very difficult position. Singaporeans are also in a world of hurt. So I just really think that, you know, what Biden is stating is pretty much the obvious. He said it three times. He is not fumbling around when he's saying it. He's very direct. He generally repeats the point in some way or another one or two, two or three times when he's having the conversation. So it's pretty obvious that's what he's thinking. And here's the whole thing. Um, Miley and the uh, what's uh, the secretary of defense, neither of them really walked it back. They just said no comment. And it's being walked back behind the scenes. It's being walked back. You know, they released something to the CNN reporter, yeah, which is a walk back, but, it's, but right. it's not a correction. That's a big deal. Mm. A walk back and a correction are two different things. Yeah. You know, a well, correction and one is wrong. Right. One final note on Kirk Campbell is, um, you know, Japan and Taiwanese let him get away with what he does because he tells them, oh, you know, I'm the hawkish side of the Democrat Party. So it's it's unfortunate that they get away with it because um, they are not friends of Taiwan or Japan or of anyone who wants to be. No, that's it. I mean, this 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 is the problem. And I, I think really so much of this, I have to say, I saw you on Fox Business. I think you did a great job today. Thanks. But the one, the one thing I kind of notice is, is like, you know, the the the, the uh, moderator was saying, do you think the American people support this? I don't think the American people are really paying attention right now oh. with somebody saying six dollar gasoline is on the way okay. and everything's going to be good. And, you know, uh, as I talked to a restaurant friend of mine the other day, he said he's taking chicken wings off his menu because he can't oh. make any money off them. And if he charges more, people get upset. Yeah. Wow. We'll be eating tofu pretty soon. 
Um, speaking of eating tofu on the economics, so Biden's over there and he's touting, I'll, I'll, I'll admit this, confess this up front, I call it the Seinfeld economic framework. It's the Indo-Pacific economic framework. I've had diplomats across East Asia complaining, first of all, that America got out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, um, which I frankly was in favor of until, because of criticism from Trump, took a closer look and thought about it and thought, well, yeah, this is people getting low tariff access to the U.S. marketplace and not giving a bunch in, in return. Um, anyway, the U.S. is out of that. So uh, we've been we've been harped upon to do something economic. Biden administration has this new framework, but I argue there's nothing to it, really. Um, you know, there's uh, some talk about a digital framework similar to what we have with Japan. That's really not that substantive. Um, and then there's a lot of negative things, things that would raise the cost of transportation and energy. So we talk about supply chain security, but we're also once again in this climate mumbo jumbo of green commitments and zero net zero commitments by 2030 or 2040, which just have and they the left impact the of raising costs. And they left the Taiwanese out. And but that's right. Yeah. By, by any measure, the Taiwanese probably have more offshore and in fact, I know they do. They have more offshore activities, Foxconn, everybody else, all those small manufacturers, than any country outside of Japan. I mean, they, the Koreans are around, but the Koreans are mostly Korea. Yeah. You know, and, um, you know, they're Korean plants everywhere, but the Taiwanese truly are, are, are you know, like kind of like a Hong Kong, but even more so. Um, Hong Kong is mostly in China, um, but the Taiwanese are everywhere. I, I myself, I... I I never really pay much attention to the trade agreements until we start seeing tariffs because I just don't think they mean that much. I myself am fine with TPP. I understand what Trump said. We're not getting anything out of it. The odd thing with these agreements is they never really turn out to be what you think they're going to be about. In other words, right. with Trump, the TPP was really about, um, you know, tariffs, tariffs, tariffs. But in fact, being a member of the TPP now would have been a way to like kind of challenge China to have a forum to talk about different economic interests. And now we're having to start this. It's a pretty good analogy, the Seinfeld thing. But I mean, they're trying. So <laughs> we'll have to see. And I think the other thing that we have to remember, too, is, you know, Southeast Asia and the rest of Asia, whether it be Singapore or the Philippines, you know, they try to have it both ways out there, too. Understandably so, because China is their major trade partner. Yeah. What did you make of Singapore saying that they will join our ridiculous uh, economic framework? Why not? Don't have to do anything. Uh, but also they now favor China joining the CPTPP, which is the successor of the TPP. Is there anything Singapore won't join just to be there? I mean, it's, it's like it's like I almost feel like they've got a waiting room of like a locker room. Go get in there, you know, and you know, they're going to they're going to find some retired diplomat somewhere, you know what I'm saying, to send over there for a country of three million people. I mean, my God, they send a lot of people to a lot of events and a lot of a lot of regimes. <laughs> Look, they're trying to have it both ways. China is their most mm -hmm. important trading partner. Let's be blunt about that. We're their right. most important security partner, um, but they're not going to go out of their way to upset China. I've heard that my whole entire 25, 30 years out there. I don't have a problem with it. I think they got to do what they got to do. And we can't ask people not to do something. It's, it's one of the things that, you know, we just can't, if they're going to trade, I mean, look, we're out there saying we're doing bilateral deals. So we can't say somebody else can't do a bilateral deal or somebody else can't do something. And we're not, if we're not in TPP, well, then, you know, we can't stop it. Unfortunately, what's going to happen with TPP, and I think we all know it, it's going to be the Japanese who are going to drag their feet on this, Yeah, you know. And 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 what'll happen is is it it may be in my mind, 
it may be an excuse for someone to say, look, we got to get back in there. Um, I don't think it'll happen politically because of the mood of the country, the J.D. Vance's of the world and all these other people. But, you know, I tell people all the time, you know, don't think for a second that we're not competing with China. That's the thing that really gets me in the U.S. side. There seems to be this desire to downplay the Chinese threat, all the China threat all the time. You yeah. know, it's like dealing with it's like it's like years ago I went to Carnegie Mellon and I had a guy very, very senior in their one of their tech departments. And we were talking and he's not an American, so I probably got to put his job in jeopardy now. But, you know, we're talking and he's all he does is say, oh, yeah, the Chinese try to steal everything. Every time we have something sensitive, they're trying to join it. All the other department heads tell me this, you know, that every time we do this, I heard the same exact I heard the same exact thing at two other universities, you know, that they basically they're, they're, they're looking at. I have a friend and my son, my kids go to Purdue. I heard it from a guy at Purdue and and it's just part of it, you know. But then you always get like the people go, oh, well, you know, the Chinese students are wonderful students and they are. I mean, the vast majority of them are. And but the vast majority of them also, if they get a phone call from the consulate saying, hey, we'd like you to try to get in this program, they try to get in that program. They're not trying to get in that program for, you know, the good reasons for the U.S. My point being is, is that we have not yet come to grips with this. We have to say, look, we're going to do business with you and we're going to try to make a lot of money together with the two of us. But here are the lines. Here are the things we're not going to do. And, you know, in fairness, a lot of companies did that for a long time. I was in a shipping company. We would fight with the Chinese all the time, whole time increasing sailings. FedEx, the airline companies, all doing it, all fighting with them, all increasing things all the time. You know, and then Delta, like, changes, you know, takes Taiwan off their map. and Everybody goes, oh, my God, that's the end of the world. I, I know guys at the airlines. They're like, whatever, you know, keeps the Chinese happy, gets them off our ass, and we're going to press them on something else. You know what I'm saying? It's a bargaining chip for them. It right. just can't Taiwan and, and other countries just can't be a bargaining chip for every place else. And we do have interest and we have to be more aggressive. One of the things that really drives me nuts is how we don't go over there and we don't basically do the public diplomacy that we need to do. Trump was not good at it. So far, the Biden team has not been good at it. Obama and Clinton would have been fantastic at it if they had done it. I think they would have been very good at it. Bush, I'm, I'm not sure. I think he was bogged down with the war stuff. But look, we just got to go like for the Philippines, for example. Well, we just got another Marcos in there. I've met Bong four or five times. I wouldn't say he knows me. Right. So Bong, just for background, this is the newly elected president of the Philippines, yeah. who's the son of the former dictator, Ferdinand Marcos, who was deposed yeah. in a and people's power revolution in and he's 1986. Still pissed, he's still pissed off that we sent his old man to... Uh, Send his own Honolulu, they're worse places to go into exile. Yeah, I mean, you know, in a big house, <laughs> and, you know, but his mom, his mom came back and, you right. know, he's still pissed off. And, 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 but I, I, I do think that quite frankly, we need to make it clear that we're behind, we're behind freedom of press. We're behind elections. We're behind an open society. And we want, we very much want a strong defense relationship, whatever it may be with the Philippines, whatever our powers, whatever our, our military wants. No, no need for basing, but the same token, we better not have a Chinese base there. And I think the leaders of these countries, look, I'm, I'm one, there's no doubt in my mind that it would be an interesting stroll through the Singaporean and Swiss bank accounts. And I'm sure we have people who can do it for the leader of the Solomon Islands for all of a sudden him decide that he likes Chinese uh, policy better than he likes Australian. I think he got, you know, I mean, 
it's pretty much well regarded how the Chinese get these friends. Same yeah. in Sri Lanka. Look what happened there now. And and I and the Indians are coming, the Indians are coming in. So my point is, I think the Chinese implode every place they go. I've never really seen them hold successful relationships. You know, they tried in the Philippines, it didn't work. The Singaporeans, a little bit more sophisticated, but the Malaysians, not really. Indonesia, certainly not. Taiwan, of course not. Japan, no. And now look at the South Koreans. The South Koreans are like, hey, you know, we're not so crazy about these guys ourselves. So the thing is, is we have people on our side. So you've got to get out there and talk to the people of Asia, talk to the people of these countries, especially the Philippines. That's a valuable U.S. ally. It's going to be a strategic uh, a strategic spot in Asia for a long time. Yeah. And here's the whole point. I even think if Xi Jinping goes away, I don't think Chinese ambitions, which actually I don't consider all that unnatural. They're a huge country, 1.3 billion and shrinking. Um, you know, they're a huge country. And of course, they want to ha be the top player in their in their area. They are the top economic player already. So they want to be the top military player. I really don't have a problem with them expanding. It's the problem I have is them always trying to kick everybody else out and also basically what they want, you know, which is very different than 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 what our society and free societies, you know, look for. Yeah. Uh, before we close out on the Philippines, um, so you think, just to summarize, and you spent, you were in shipping there, right? You spent a lot of time Yeah, yeah there. I was in the Philippines, still have property there. I don't have property. Oh, my really? wife, oh. I'm not allowed to. My wife has the property. My dad Big. called it the divorce palace. He said, if she ever leaves you, she's taking everything. <laughs> Big pineapple plantation, I hope. No, um, no, not really. A couple of mango trees, though. Oh, well, that's a start. They're nice. Um, so bong bong pissed at us family heritage all that no one's expecting the philippines to turn into um you know switzerland with uh, uh things running like a finely tuned machine in the absence of corruption but an improvement over duterte and maybe something for the u.s to work I, I, with i think actually not an improvement over duterte and the reason mm -hmm. why is this mm -hmm. look duterte was a stone cold killer he was ruthless he was not a dumb guy. I met him. I talked to him a couple of times. I've watched Duterte. Duterte was on our no come to the U.S. list in 1988. Okay, so basically <laughs> since the time I've been out of college, this guy's been on the shit list for the U.S. So he's not, he doesn't like Americans. I, I've, I've told the story before where I met him in a line one time and the U.S. Embassy guys go, just keep walking, just keep walking. You know? <laughs> and another time I met him. Anyway, but but he's very cunning. He's very ruthless. And he's got a very significant political machine. Bong Bong doesn't have that machine. Bong Bong's machine is really, in my mind, sure people disagree, but a large part of it is Duterte's machine. Right. In, in and other Duterte's words, daughter is now his vice president, right? That's right. And she wants yeah. to be president. So the family wants to keep going. So my point, Bong Bong might be looking over both shoulders. You know what I'm saying? He could be looking over this for the for the elites and for the democratically inclined, you can be looking over this shoulder for, you know, the Duterte clan decide, decided to take him out. The problem I have with Bong Bong is I've watched him for years. He is an incredibly, uh, 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 unstable is the wrong word. That's the, completely the wrong word. He is not unstable, he's not a dumb guy, but he's incredibly incendiary. And huh. um, my fear is, is that he never really has held a position that he has to do something. He's been a congressman, which in the Philippines is kind of meaningless, kind of a playboy. Duterte ran Mindanao. Okay, so he ran basically half the Philippines. 
And he ran a country that was, I mean, ran a region that basically had to deal with the, you know, the Muslim, the Muslims problem down there, as they call it. And um, I think that fundamentally Duterte is, I've never, I always hate when people go, oh, he's a, you know, they call him a fool or a blunderer or something like that. These guys are there for a reason. There's usually something they've got there. It's like when you go to Capitol Hill and I, I have conservative friends who make fun of um, Speaker Pelosi all the time. And I deal with Pelosi a lot, I deal her office a lot. One thing I would not call Nancy Pelosi is stupid. You know what I'm saying? I, I would, right. I would, you know, I would not agree with on her a lot of her policies, but I certainly wouldn't call her stupid. I wouldn't call McGovern stupid. There are a couple up there I might, you know what I'm saying? But I mean, but, you know, by the same token, um, the people who tend to rise to the leadership in any of these organizations tend to be sharks. And that's my fear about Bong Bong. I, I partially consider Bong Bong really just a stand in for the Duterte clan until it's their turn again. Hmm. But I don't well, think Duterte is going to make it. His, his health is, I mean, that guy is, that guy is just running on spite. And, you know, it's like watching, uh, you know, it's, it's like Beetlejuice staying alive with him. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you know, he's, <laughs> you know, the guy, I think, I think, you know, I think, you know, basically he's got cancers fighting cancers, you know, mm. so he, he's not in great shape. Um, but, and, and does that, does that, does that transfer to his daughter? She's doing all she can to make sure it does, but you know, we'll see. I mean, Bong Bong could be an E-rap of Joseph Estrada in my mind last couple of years. Interesting. Who was basically an actor who was just a celebrity who got into the, the the economy. You have to, you have to be fair. The economy under Duterte before COVID came on, wasn't bad. It was actually growing, you know, it, it, the, the Philippines became the preferred destination because of the population growth, like Indonesia. And the other thing, too, is, you know, a lot of people are making pretty good money there. I think America needs to get in there and make more money there. And I yes. think we need to make sure that we have it. The, the Filipinos love America. They do. The Filipino people all have an attachment. I mean, I'm not kidding you across the board. You know, I was in General Santos and met some students who were... You would think, you know, as a friend of mine told me, they, they go to the U.S. Embassy, they come up for the demonstrations, and when they found out that, like, the U.S. had cameras on them, the next day they all had masks on. You know what I'm saying? Because they, they, they still want to maybe get their visa to go to the U.S. So, <laughs> you know, it's this, and, 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 and they, they have a strong attachment to another place, too, believe it or not, Canada. You know, that, yeah. a very strong, so they, they're attached to the West, they're part of the West. And I do think the one thing that, you know, I, you know, look, Duterte, Bong Bong killed the opposition. She wasn't a good candidate. I mean, I mean, she, she, she was, I mean, it was basically, I hate to say it, their version of Kamala Harris. You know, mm-hmm. she was not a good candidate. I've seen Rennie for years. She was not a good vice president. She did not put up opposition to Duterte. Um, she basically, you know, would, would give the speech, um, do the, um, I am pro-democracy, I am not Duterte, and get, you know, awards from, international groups who said, oh, she's so wonderful, but that Duterte never even tried to move against her, told you what he thought about her. You know, if she was a threat, he'd have been moved. He'd have found, she'd have been indicted on some type of corruption charge. She never was. All right. You know, I take what you mean about Americans have to be more present too. I just got back from the UAE, visits to Abu Dhabi and Dubai. And one thing um, you think is actually the trade minister said is that Americans aren't 
present enough. And who knows why, uh, whether it's because of uh, disincentives with taxes or over-aggressive application of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, or just because our focus has been elsewhere, or because corporate America is too busy discussing how many pronouns and genders there are instead of just that's, doing that's, business. I, I don't mean to cut you off, but that's mm -hmm. a great point. You know, one of the things now is like when I was a kid, when I was growing up, I'm, I've grown quite a bit, but you know, when I was growing up, um, when I was coming up, you know, the idea of going overseas, you know, was really quite exciting. I remember, you know, when I first went to Asia the first time and, you know, some of the people I was in graduate school at Georgetown with, I came back for Christmas and they asked me to come to a party. And I was like, okay, well, I don't know if these guys like me or not. I'm a little bit older than a lot of them, but you know, I went to this party and there were like 14 people sitting there and it wasn't a party. It was like a dinner table and they wanted to know how to come to Asia. They wanted to know what to do. And three or four of them did. And, mm -hmm. and, and that was exciting. And now I sense if I went to Georgetown, other than the foreign service school or other than someplace else, you know, there'd be half the people there going, oh, I'm, you know, I want to work for this, this NGO or that NGO or this. And the number of young people like I have people say, well, you know, I'd like to get a job here or there. And, and I think the thing is, is that we, I think in part it's, it's the millennials, but also there's so many opportunities here in the U.S., uh -huh. you know what I'm saying, that they actually really don't go abroad as much as they should. Um, they, they view it somewhat as a hardship. Unfortunately, China, which a lot of people were excited about, in fairness, nobody really wants to go live in China now. You know, they, they you know, learning Chinese languages you know, guys who are trying to pick up girls in my mind most of the time, you know what I'm saying? I mean, I hate to say it, but uh, I'll get in trouble for that. But uh, I'll take, I'll take <laughs> the heat. It's true. But the thing is, is that, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's just not what it was. And I think we have to engage because one of the great things that we do have, you know, I always thought, and I'll, this is a business point. I always thought the diversity of American companies abroad was a massive, massive advantage. In other words, when I thought, used to say, hey, American companies are diverse, we have everybody in our company and we can send everybody anywhere. You know, when it, cause it used to, I used to be up against like these Norwegian and these, you know, the blue, uh, you know, you know, all the all I used to call them, the blue eyed people. You know what I'm saying? All the no offense, all the blonde, all the all the Germans, they were all. But you when you met a German, you didn't meet a Turkish German. You know what I'm saying? Overseas. Right. But, but with America, you meet all kinds of people, Chinese Americans, you meet. Japanese Americans, you meet German Americans, you meet all these people, and they're representing U.S. companies because the U.S. companies had this really solid belief in like hiring people and 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 getting the best tools out there that they could, and those diversity was a tool. Then all of a sudden, diversity became—I don't know what it became—and I still haven't figured it out yet. But diversity is now something that's like an internal weapon that they eat against each other. You know what I'm mm -hmm. saying? I mean, it's 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 like I'll give you an example. First of all, like you always want to try if you're a sales organization, you always want to try to set your number two or number three as a national or somebody who speaks that language. You can get those people in the, the country, but you don't want your number one to be from that country because then you're worried about I hate to say it. You're worried about um, basically not being able to attract. I know this sounds really weird, but basically having pressure on that individual that another person wouldn't have. I'm not saying you have to send a white guy to China, but if you if you send a, a guy of Hispanic descent, African-American, maybe not a Japanese-American, but you know somebody else to China, you can send these people. And we right. had them, America had them. Now, 
I don't know what it is, Kristen, but I'll tell you, when I look at some of these companies, I hear them talk about diversity. I, I don't I don't I don't think we have the same definition in terms of using it as a business advantage. Right, because it isn't about ideas or skills. It's about innate things. Yeah, it's or, about numbers. Yeah. It's about making sure yeah. that we have this, this. And then they turn it internally. But, you know, I mean, w one of the things is, I mean, like I said, I think I think our, our focus on tech has changed largely, too, because, mm -hmm. you know, I'm not an expert on Silicon Valley. But when you go there, most of the people in Silicon Valley are completely content to say, I still remember I met the head of Google and for APEC. And I was like, what's APEC? And she goes, well, that's Asia Pacific Central America. That's how they call it. I said, what the <laughs> hell does El Salvador have to do with, you know, Singapore? I mean, you know, but, that, but, but she goes, oh, well, we run it, you know, out of, out of this center. Now, of course, they've advanced since then. You know what I'm saying? But that was early on. And there's a lot of tech companies that are like that. You know, they just think they can sit there and, and go forth. And, and it's not, you can't. Right, right. All right. Well, let's leave it there for this episode of Simon and White. We'll be back again soon with another episode. And if you like us, please subscribe, leave a comment on Apple. We'll be back again soon. Thanks.